0: Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our theme for the next four podcasts is a recurring one on my show Wrongful Conviction. Way back in 2009, I became a volunteer with the Innocence Project of Florida, then a member of the board of directors, and now the Innocence Project of Florida is underwriting my podcast. Any book that deals with wrongful conviction is one I must read. So, our guest today is the author of a new book called Bard Why the Innocent Can't Get Out of Prison. I welcome distinguished professor of law and criminal justice, Daniel Medwood at Northeastern North University. He was a public defender for a while and then assistant director of an innocence project at Brooklyn Law School called Second Look Clinic. Welcome, Professor Medwin.
1: Thank you, Harriet, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: You're very welcome. So let's begin with some statistics. One of my most favorite websites is the National Registry of Exonerations, and they have documented 3,293 cases of wrongful conviction since they began keeping records in 1989. And in your book, you tell us that since that date, DNA alone has exonerated 375 innocent people, even though DNA accounts for just 10 to 20% of all cases. We seem to be hearing much more frequently about people walking out of prison who are innocent. Are there really that many who are not guilty sitting behind bars?
1: That's the million dollar question, or I guess the $64 million question from back in the day. And I wish I knew the answer. Here's my view. I think that documented DNA exonerations are just the tip of the innocence iceberg. And here's why. First of all, there is no right to post conviction counsel at either the federal or state level. You don't have a right to an attorney after the end of your trial and after the end of your direct appeal. And post-conviction litigation is the mechanism through which you can exonerate people. So it's very hard to get a lawyer for these cases. And the second reason why it's so difficult, even if you can get a lawyer to investigate and litigate these cases, there are a range of procedural barriers that we'll, we'll no doubt talk about later that are part of my book that make it very difficult to free the innocent. So if you take a very conservative estimate, let's just say that that 1% of the people in prison are there, uh, even though they're innocent, which is a really conservative estimate, I think, and then you add the fact that we have a million people or so behind bars. You're looking at 10,000 people. You're looking at thousands of people based on a conservative estimate. So I really think that the data of demonstrated wrongful convictions, as I said, are just the tip of the iceberg. Right.
0: Yeah, I've heard uh, a higher estimate in terms of how many are sitting behind bars that are supposedly innocent.
1: Exactly, and, and the estimates really range. I'm glad you brought that up. At the they higher do. end, some people think 3 to 5%, even right. more. At the yeah. low end, some uh, more conservative, meaning politically conservative, not, not cautious. Uh, politi- politically uh, conservative scholars and judges have, have put it below 1%. Um, so I like to use the term 1% just as a very, very, very modest figure.
0: And even at 1%, look at the figure you come up with. Yes, yeah, there you so, go. Yeah. I particularly like a statement from your book, and I'm, I'm going to read it. It says, after conviction, the presumption of innocence disappears. A new presumption of guilt forms and hardens over time. How does that happen? So essentially, our criminal justice system
1: puts the trial as the centerpiece. In fact, in 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court said the trial is the main event. The appeal is just the undercard, to use a boxing analogy. So the presumption of innocence, Harriet, is just a trial concept. You have a presumption of innocence, and the theory is that if you benefit from zealous advocacy and the police and the prosecutors play fair, then the truth will prevail through that process. And then if you are convicted after trial, trial, it makes sense for the presumption of innocence to go away, and now it's replaced by a presumption of guilt. And instead of the burden being on the government to prove your guilt, which is where it is placed at the front end of the trial process, now the burden is on you to prove a a, a negative, to prove that you're not uh, guilty. And that becomes increasingly uh, difficult. So the presumption flips, and all of the procedures that are used in the appellate and post-conviction arena sort of reflect that, that inversion, that it's very difficult to prove uh, 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 your, your innocence. And part of the reason is this concept of finality, that a lot of prosecutors and judges and police will say, we can't keep criminal cases open forever because it will keep victims on tender hooks. They'll never know when the case is over. The case will never have closure. They'll never be able to move on with their lives. And also the system won't be able to absorb new cases because there are so many old cases that are flooding flooding the system. So this concern with finality and this idea, which I think is a very antiquated and naive idea, that the trial is the main event, that our system, our adversary system gets it right, you know, those two principles converge to create that, that situation, I think.
0: Right. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of a side question. Why did you, um, I guess you helped, right, create that second look program at Brooklyn Law School?
1: That's, that's a really great question. So back, we started it in two thousand and one. It was quite a long time ago. And back then, we had, and there still is, the biggest Innocence Project in the country, just across the river, just across the <laughs> East River, at, at Cardozo School of Law, where Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, back in 1992, had founded the Innocence Project. They they put the word "the" before mm-hmm. Innocence Project, but it's really just one of dozens of Innocence Projects across the country, including the one you're the great one that you're affiliated with, the Innocence Project Florida, and the terrific work of, of Seth Miller and, and others, but. We knew that the Cardozo Innocence Project only focused on DNA cases. They only focused on cases where biological evidence was found at the crime scene, retained over time, and could in theory be uh, accessed and tested to potentially exculpate an innocent person. So we decided that there was something missing in New York. A project that was exclusively focused on non-DNA cases. Cases where there was no biological evidence, but there was still reason to think that the person might be innocent. So that was what animated, I did it with a senior colleague, a great lawyer named Will Hellerstein, who has since retired, but sort of a legendary former public defender who argued many cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was sort of a a combination of a senior person, and at that time I was quite young, a younger person, uh, joined forces to do it with our students
0: I see oh wonderful
1: uh, and it's still going I assume uh, unfortunately it's not Harriet oh, it's, it's not. defunct um, part of the reason is is I left and then will retired and that there wasn't really enough momentum to keep it going I but, see. but it did last for about 10 years
0: oh I'm sure in those 10 uh, you helped as many people as, as possible. We tried. And, and, and of course, uh, the guest who was coming next, um, you you were helpful too. Uh, That's right. Meet, meet him yeah, in a few. So um, some other factors that feed into this whole idea of wrongful <clears throat> conviction, um, there, there's so many, but I, I would like you to address a few. And one is the power of the prosecutor.
1: The power of the prosecutor. This is such an interesting and important topic. So I think if you ask the average person on the street, who is the most powerful player in the criminal justice system, they might say judges. They'll think judges have power. They seldom, the, the average non-lawyer, I think, has a very limited grasp of how much power prosecutors have. And, and here's where they hold the power. They have almost unbridled power to decide whether someone is formally charged with a crime. After the police make an arrest, prosecutors make that decision. They could decline to prosecute. They could drop the case. They also decide what particular charges should be sought. Do you go for the highest charge, just the highest charge? Do you go for a bunch of charges? And even then, after they charge someone with a crime and they um, secure what's called an indictment, then they make the unilateral decision about whether to offer a plea bargain. They don't have to offer a plea in a case. They can just decide to go to trial. Judges don't force them to offer pleas. So essentially, they control the inception of a criminal case, and in many cases, the the resolution of the case, because more than ninety percent of cases are resolved through through pleas. They also, of course, since they bear the burden of proof at the trial, um, essentially are taking the lead in in developing a narrative or a theory of the case, the story of the case that comes out. They uh, then also play a role in sentencing uh, and in basically every phase of the criminal justice uh, process. Uh, Interestingly, uh, a famous scholar in the 19th century, a guy named George Sharswood said, prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice. They are equally concerned with being a zealous advocate for the government position, as they are with fairness to everyone in the community. They don't represent crime victims. They represent the people. They represent all of us. And that that community includes the forlorn criminal defendant who's being accused of a crime. But prosecutors seldom do a good job, I think, of balancing those competing responsibilities. And they often, sadly, uh, exert their power in a way uh, that could lead not just to mass incarceration, uh, but to the conviction uh, of innocent people and to prolonging their sentences on the back end
0: as well. Um, There are other factors, of course, as well. Um, There's something called Brady violations. And I've spoken about it before, but you never know who's just tuning in. So if you would explain what is a Brady violation?
1: Yes, Brady is a very important uh, topic and a natural follow-on to your question, uh, Harriet, about, about prosecutorial power. So back in 1963, the US Supreme Court handed down a case called Brady versus Maryland. And the case stands for the proposition that before trial, prosecutors must disclose certain evidence to the defense. The evidence that is both favorable to the accused would somehow help the accused and what the court called material to guilt or punishment it, it somehow mattered to whether they were guilty or what their punishment might be the idea is that prosecutors have all carry all the cards they hold all of the cards in this process they work with the police to gather evidence and they typically are not required to disclose that evidence to the defense before trial in fact in many jurisdictions prosecutors don't even have to hand over their witness list to the defense before trial. So Brady was designed to some extent to level or even the playing field a little bit by saying, hey, prosecutors, if you have evidence that essentially exonerates or or helps the defendant. Maybe the primary eyewitness uh, first identified somebody else or uh, maybe there's some physical evidence that's inconsistent with the defendant, something like that. The defense should know about that in order to mount a defense. So that's what Brady is in practice and it's been on the books for 60 years. I mean, sorry, that's what it is in theory and it's been on the books for 60 years. Here's what it looks like in practice. Prosecutors have a lot of discretion in deciding whether a piece of evidence is or is not Brady material. In particular, evidence that might feel favorable to the defense, in the eyes of a prosecutor, might not seem material. So, for instance, if there's a lot of evidence against a defendant and the prosecution has uh, some just a single eyewitness saying someone else did it but nine eyewitnesses who say that the defendant did it the prosecutor might say hey well of course this favors the defendant but it wouldn't make a difference in terms of guilt or innocence it wouldn't affect the outcome here because we have nine other witnesses so we don't have to turn it over to the accused Um, because they have and then their decision is often Opaque. We don't know when a prosecutor looks at evidence and decides that it doesn't have to be turned over because it's not Brady. We don't necessarily know that that decision was made unless years later, often through happenstance, somebody uncovers this evidence and makes a belated claim of a Brady violation. So, Mm -hmm. So Brady violations crop up in a number of the documented exonerations in our data set.
0: Oh, definitely. And then um, another factor that you talk about is a focus on expediency and the impact on accuracy. And I noted um, Jeffrey Deskovic's case. I had interviewed him some time ago. So how does that um, how does that fit into the puzzle? I'm glad
1: you interviewed Jeff Deskovic and of course you did because he's a great interview and and his case is extraordinary. So this is a man for some of your listeners who may not have had the privilege of listening to that episode, um, Harriet, that you did. um, Jeff Deskovic was uh, wrongfully uh, convicted of a vicious rape and murder um, in uh, Peekskill, New York uh, about 30, 35 years ago, uh, killing a teenage girl. And the evidence against him was pretty threadbare. It was based mainly on A false confession, a confession that he made. He was a little bit of a loner, he was 16 at the time. Um, It might be fair to say a little bit uh, troubled and he made some form of confession, a very ambiguous confession to the police. There was biological evidence at the crime scene that excluded him. As the perpetrator, but prosecutors basically came up with a couple theories to reconcile that fact with their theory of Deskovich's death. The, the first theory was that he might have had a co uh, a defendant, that there was an unknown person who participated in this with Jeff um, and left the biological evidence at the crime scene seems kind of absurd because their whole theory was really that Jeff Deskovic was a loner, a troubled loner who is fixated on this girl, but still that was a theory they advanced. The other theory they advanced at trial without any foundation really, a very little foundation, was that the biological evidence, which was seminal fluid, came from a boyfriend of the decedent, of the victim, even though there was no evidence that she was uh, had a boyfriend, was in an intimate relationship uh, at all a, a, at the time. So, So fast forward a few years. He's convicted, he loses his appeal, and he's filing a federal habeas corpus petition where he's trying to say that he's wrongfully behind bars. And this goes to your point Harriet about expediency. His lawyer calls up the clerk and says, "Hey, I'm almost done with this petition. You have to file your petition within a certain amount of time. And um do I need to send this petition to you before the deadline? Do you have to receive it before the deadline or is it okay to just have it date stamped on the deadline?" And the clerk said, "Oh, you know, date stamping's fine." Just, just get it into me on that particular date. I think it was April 24th, 1997. She finishes it up, or he, the lawyer finishes it up, date stamped on the 24th, it arrives a few days later, and eventually the court says it was time barred. It was too late. Jeff Deskovic, nine years later, was exonerated through the great work of the Innocence Project in New York City, which accessed the biological evidence from the rape kit, tested it, and it came back as a hit on a man named Stephen Cunningham, who was already in prison for strangling and raping another woman. And he then confessed to doing this crime alone. So who knows if the federal court hadn't had such a rigorous focus on the statute of limitations on expediency over justice if maybe he had said, as a matter of, of simple equity, justice, his case should be heard because the lawyer and the clerk got confused about the right date, if they had done that, would he have been spared, you know, years later, uh, years earlier than he, than he was? I'm not so sure. But I think that's an example. The system values finality. The system values expediency. Part of that, again, goes back to couple of things we mentioned at the outset this concern about closure for victims that the institutions don't want to keep cases open forever because victims then will, will always be on the edge of their seat and they won't be able to experience psychological closure the other reason of course is if you have old cases in the system there might not be enough room to fit in the new cases and the system will be overwhelmed and overburdened
0: yeah well that was a good example. Um, and now we have the issue that you talk about so much of plea bargaining yeah. and how that ties in to cases of wrongful conviction.
1: It's a huge factor. So I think I mentioned a moment ago or several minutes ago that they, more than 90 percent of criminal cases are resolved through plea bargains and they're negotiated Outside elever, elevators, in vestibules, in restaurants, uh, just uh, in courthouse outside courthouse doors, not necessarily in an open, transparent forum in front of a judge and a jury. And the way a lot of these plea bargains are brokered is that you have to offer and attract. The prosecutor has to offer an attractive deal to the defendant to basically get the defendant to waive his or her constitutional right. To a jury trial. So when one of the cases that I talk about in the book, and it involves Stephen Schultz, whom you're you're talking with on the show in a few, a few episodes down the line. Well, I I won't, I won't I won't give away the punchline yeah, on that. Don't I won't, give talk about, away. I, I don't I won't do that. But there are a lot of cases where you offer a plea deal that is much more generous than the potential trial exposure. So let's say you're facing 20 years in prison if you're convicted, and the DA, the district attorney, offers you a deal of a five-year sentence. If you're at all risk averse, even if you're innocent, you might take that deal because you don't wanna run the risk of being convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Some people on the, on the defense side, and I'm among them, call this the trial tax. If you're facing a 20 year sentence at trial and you're offered a deal of five years, that's a 15 year tax on your right to assert mm. your, your constitutional um, opportunity to go to trial. Uh, but get this, prosecutors often call it a plea discount. They call it a plea discount. Mm that you're given a 15-year discount for not wasting um, uh, people's time. It's a little bit like, and in, in, Harry, I know you're in Florida, the early bird special. You know, you go to dinner really <laughs> early, you, you know, you get money off, off uh, the, the cost goes down. And that's sort of how prosecutors view it. If, if you plead out early in the process and don't go to trial, you know, you don't want to eat at prime time, we're going to give you a discount. Well, the defense will say that's not a discount, that's a tax for not actually uh, being able to vindicate my constitutional right to a jury trial.
0: All right, uh, we are coming down to almost the end of our, our part one interview with you. Um, so maybe we could talk about uh, something that you call quorum nobis" um, and define the term for those unfamiliar and why this is important in the scheme of things.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you asked about that. So the book goes through the panoply of different remedies that are available after you're convicted. So there's the direct appeal, which is a typical remedy. There's a federal habeas corpus. And then there's something called quorum nobis, which could potentially be the most promising avenue. So quorum nobis is a ancient British writ. It derives from the 16th century. And quorum nobis is Latin for before us. And under this writ or remedy, you're allowed to go back to the original trial judge, to go before the judge with newly discovered evidence that might cast doubt on the integrity of a conviction. And if the judge in her solomonic wisdom thinks there is evidence here uh, uh, that maybe an injustice occurred, then she may order a new trial. So the idea is you can develop newly discovered evidence that suggests a person shouldn't be behind bars and a judge will hear that evidence and then uh, potentially grant a new trial and the prosecutor may or may not retry the person. The problem, and I know we're running out of time, but very briefly, the problem is that judges are very stingy in, uh, in how they envision newly discovered evidence. It can't just be evidence that's newly available. It has to be evidence that could not have been found before. Oh. And that means it's much, more, much, much narrower a remedy than might appear to be the case at, at first blush.
0: What would be uh, a quick example of newly discovered evidence? Excellent. A witness who comes
1: out of the woodwork to say they saw the crime, but that person wasn't on the police radar uh, at the time. That's a good example. You find a new witness, someone who is unknown to the police. But the problem is sometimes the way that you find that new witness is they're mentioned somewhere in a police report as as someone who's maybe interviewed but never called to trial. And prosecutors will sometimes say, well, that that's not newly discovered. The defense could have talked to that person at the time of trial because their name was available on a police report that they should have noticed or something like that. So there's often a battle over, is the person just newly available, which is not a way to get back to the courthouse, or is it newly discovered?
0: Mm. Very interesting. I think you've cleared that up. All right. We are just about out of time, but you have told us you'll come back and talk to us again and so much to talk about. So I thank you so much for being here today and thank my listeners for tuning in and hopefully you will all come back and uh, visit again when we pick up Pursuing Justice. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Harriet Hindell.